is there some sort of universal law that states that your infrastructure is going to fail whenever you're not around? Because I seem to always be subject to it. There I was, down at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, actually the night before, dreaming about what we might discover, thinking about what we might learn. I decide to check in on my Intrepid RV, about seven hours north of where I was. I pull up the Home Assistant app, and it just isn't quite loading. And I think, hmm, that's strange. So I fire up Tailscale, and I pull up the web interface, because the web interface always works when the app doesn't work. And it still doesn't load. And I think, huh, I wonder if something's wrong with Home Assistant. And a few days go by, and I finally make it back to the RV. And I discover that my Raspberry Pi home server that runs more than just Home Assistant. I mean, it runs my Plex instance, my SyncThing instance, my Duplicati instance, my SmokePing instance, my Markdown Notes instance, and Home Assistant. Dead. Just dead. Dead as a doornail. Just totally dead. Uh-oh. And you know the worst part? I don't even know why it's dead. What do you mean you don't know why it's dead? I don't even know what happened. I, I mean, we've been on the road, and I've been, trying to figure, I've been trying to figure it out, but we just haven't had a chance. I haven't even hooked up an HDMI screen to it. Oh, I see. I did the hardware swap thing, you know? Yeah, so what was your plan with that hardware swap? Because it seemed like a brilliant plan at the time. Well, thank you. I mean, I brought a, I bought a duplicate Raspberry Pi, same thing, Raspberry Pi 4, 8 gigs, in the same case, forever ago. Just ready to go. I swapped everything over, hit the power button, and nothing. And I looked at my dead, ras- dead Raspberry Pi, and I realized, oh, there's an, there's an SD card in oh, here. Chris. I think it might... I, this is like the first one I ever set up. I think maybe it was using that SD card for like slash boot. Mm-hmm. I can't remember anymore, but... When I first did this, there was kind of a workaround to get Ubuntu running on the Raspberry Pi 4. It was before official support had landed. And I think maybe the SD card was used for Grub or something like that. But I don't know why it would have died while it was running. So I'm wondering if something more significant happened, but I just don't know at this point. Maybe there was an unattended upgrade. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe a live patch. You know, I did the whole reboot thing, and of course, I'm trying to SSH into it. I can't ping it. I can't. I can't ping it on the Tailscale IP either. It seems gone. And the and the worst part of that is, it runs a lot of automations in the RV, like all of the lighting, the heating, of course, the cooling, the, a lot of the outdoor stuff. It's all managed by Home Assistant on this stupid Raspberry Pi, and so it's like we're running things like animals with switches. Yeah, this place went from a five star to about a three and a half, I think. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you let this guy into your home, Alex, you know? Indeed. Well, this seems like an appropriate moment to introduce Brent again. Hello, Brent. How are you? Welcome back. Thank you very much. And uh, what about you, gentlemen? Well, actually, we had some feedback at the meetup in Pasadena that we don't introduce ourselves anymore. So let's just take a moment for anybody that hasn't worked out that i'm alex and the other guy is chris hey chris hello everybody thank you for being here okay good now that's out of the way welcome into episode 81 now that's out of the way (laughs) i want to ask you if this has got you thinking about deploying some real hardware in a production system (laughs) (laughs) fair enough uh you know, listener Jeff was really the MVP of our West Coast road trip, and he sent me home with an atom-based unit that only draws five watts, and it's got two cores, 
four gigs of RAM. I'm tempted to just build a dedicated home assistant system out of that. Why not? Well, I just got shipment notification about my home assistant yellow. No, I should be didn't. receiving it the Friday Shut of this up. week. I did. No, you did. I have the UPS. I've got a UPS tracking number and everything. Where's it coming from? Guam. <laughs> I think they landed in Texas, and then some some distribution place in Texas is sending them out from there. Right. Okay. It's so exciting because this marks the second <laughs> crowd supply thing that I've ever backed that I'm actually going to receive. Very excited. And so the Home Assistant Yellow is supposed to arrive this Friday. The only thing was is I kind of wanted to go with something more powerful. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what's got me thinking is you you often run into these issues when you're on the road remotely and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. Almost exclusively. Oh, it's so annoying. I think you need to embrace IPMI of some description. I think that needs to be a requirement for you. Oh, interesting. Oh, you know, I thought about that for the studio and I agree, but I had not thought about it for the RV. Well, of course, there's the Pi KVM project for x86 boards that don't come with a BMC chip built in. But, you know, you could probably build a server that does everything. How many pies do you have deployed in, in dupes right now? <laughs> well, no, no, come on. I pared it down. I pared it down to only two. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying this to be, a, to be a, a, you know, a phallic object. I'm, I'm just saying this out, out of love. Like, gen, gen, genuine question. It was four. It was four in production. And over time, I pared it down to two. Okay. So if we allow a 10-watt budget per pie, give or take... Right, that's tw- now it was 40 watts, it's now 20 watts. You could build a very capable x86 system that does everything all of those pies do and has a BMC built into it. Uh, you, you know, given that power is, it's not, you're not quite as limited on power as the Mars rover is, but you're not far off. It's true. We, every watt does count, especially watts that run continuously. Uh, what about heat consideration? That is a thing. That's a big thing. I've been really trying to do the math on that, too. When I build the next one, I'm trying to think, do I want to build it in a booth or do I want to go somewhere else and just drill holes? The Raspberry Pi, and maybe that's what finally killed it, was heat. I don't know. But the Raspberry Pi has done a remarkable job of holding up to intense temperatures over long periods of time. My bet really is what happened is there was some kind of a power brownout that was enough to make the Pi reboot and the SD card was toast in that time since it last rebooted. Uh, I don't obviously have any data to back that up, but that's what I suspect probably happened. So in total, I spent $169 on the Home Assistant Yellow, and I was watching their live stream today as we record, and I don't think they're going to make many more of these because they can't get their hands on the compute module. So they finally got this thing shipping. In fact, they don't even have the PoE one sorted out yet. They have the non-PoE one shipping. And... They may not make many more just because you can't get them. That's a real shame. I mean, but on the flip side, it's not a good look for the project, is it? Uh, charge people money for something and then not ship it for a year or two. I know it's not their fault, but... Yeah, I ordered it mid-September and now we're here in early October. So it's just over a year ago that I ordered it. Jeez, that's a long time. It's a very long time. I mean, if you look at what Valve did with the Steam Deck, I know that Valve are... Uh, orders of magnitude got more buying power than Home Assistant uh, Nebucasa as a, as a company, but I paid Valve five bucks to sit in a queue, essentially. And then when the time came to actually chip my hardware, that's when my credit card got charged. 
Right. Maybe something like that could work for Home Assistant. Yeah, I think too, they, the tricky thing here is they based it on the Pi compute module. And that became one of the hardest things to get your hands on in bulk right now. The Raspberry Pi stuff is like still impossible to find. Yeah. Uh, I was just doing a check recently and... The most common thing you can find at the moment is the Pi 3. Which, from what I'm learning, isn't that useful for anything. Did you see that Jeff Gehrling did a video just last few days where he talked with the uh, founder of the Raspberry Pi project about availability and things like that and how there's no end in sight. They're making 400,000 of these things a month and something like 95% is going into industrial use cases. Wow. 95%? Is it even really meant for industrial use cases? You know, there I, I noticed, you know, because Jeff also does an accompanying blog post, and I noticed that one of the comments on Jeff's blog post was sort of giving a different version of this story. They claim, I don't know how they would know, but they claim having inside knowledge and that Broadcom is actually a bit pissed at the Raspberry Pi folks because they're going commercial. And essentially, like, the whole deal for getting a super cheap chip from Broadcom was that you were creating this educational device for kids. And now you've announced your intentions to IPO and make a commercial company out of all of this. And now you need to pay the commercial rates and you're going to be lumped in with our commercial clients and not our educational clients. And so they're also getting slower supply from Broadcom, according to this commenter. But I have to say, it kind of seems like it checks out. I think the Raspberry Pi Foundation, much like all of us, are kind of being caught off guard by just how ubiquitous it's it's become and i i think it's a, a perfect example of how if you influence the right people the nerds the engineers the people tinkering if you influence them they will then go into work and say hey well why don't we just use a pie like if, if i you know i remember um my last job we had on the wall we had tv screens showing build statuses of all the different uh, ci processes and each one of them had a raspberry pi running because one of the development team in that sprint team was like, well, we need to monitor the status. Why don't we just get a pie because it's only £35, stick it behind the TV and jobs are good. And I think not only has the Pi Foundation been caught out by the success of their product, but so it sounds like has Broadcom. Perhaps that would make a lot of sense. It's tricky because I actually think if they don't figure something out, the M1 platform is going to make a pretty worthy successor for home labbers if imagine for a moment if you would alex there was decent linux support for the m1 which we may be only nine months ten months away from and and that includes thunderbolt support because right now i'm hanging usb discs off a raspberry pi but if i had thunderbolt support i could have real actual pci attached storage and if i had an m1 cpu i would have something that has built-in hd64 decoding and encoding like like a banshee and if somehow Plex could come along and get support for that, then we'd really be cooking with gas. Don't you just wish that macOS server wasn't terrible? <laughs> Is macOS server even a thing anymore? I think they might. No. <laughs> I don't even know. I know. It's, it's, it's really sad. And honestly, I feel like Docker desktop isn't good enough on the Mac for production use the way I would want. I want something headless. I want it to be Linux. I mean, Asahi, this, uh, the last, last couple of weeks released uh, preliminary support for GPU acceleration under Linux with the M1 chip, which is a huge, huge milestone. Yeah, using a Rust driver. <laughs> a Rust driver. I mean, that's amazing. So maybe, I mean, maybe it's not too far off, but it's not going to be within the time that I need to build my next home server. 
I think I'm going to have to just out of practicality base it around this yellow. It would seem crazy not to, you know, showing up on my doorstep as I'm returning back in, in town and I, and I need a new server. Yeah, if you need an appliance, it sounds like that might be it. But let me ask you this. If money was no object, what would you do in dupes? The trickiest thing is storage. If money was no object, I'd spend a lot on storage and it'd be solid state storage because I have to go down the road. So that's where I'd probably blow a lot of money. You're not going to believe this, but I mean, for 90% of the time, I have found the Raspberry Pi 4 has been fast enough. The pages could have always loaded faster in Home Assistant, and, and I'm on a couple of versions behind now. Home Assistant could have always been faster, but Plex and Sync thing and like my Markdown Docs, I forget the name of the Markdown Docs website thing, those all always ran totally fine. I was surprised. I was shocked that I got by with a Raspberry Pi. It was just Home Assistant that could be a little bit faster but, you know, a lot of that might have come down to storage technology. That's why I think the M1 would be perfect, you know? Yeah. 10, 20 watts, a lot of horsepower, fast storage. Just don't want Mac OS. Well, if, if power was no object, I know we, we made money no object just then, but I think power is probably your biggest limiting factor as, as well as maybe space. Like You can't have a big 42U rack in there, can you? Like If power was no object, would you do the same thing? If power was no object, I think I'd be tempted to build a rack unit into one of the storage bays, you know, and go with like a big x86 box and probably do a lot of hosting in jupes just because that's I like the idea of something. It's it's truly decentralized. I can move it. I can take it with me. And I'd rather have the source of truth here as long as I had a good backup. Right now, I, ho I hold the source of truth of everything at the studio. So I'd probably build a rack unit if I could go crazy, but I don't need it. You know, I, I, I didn't lose any data. My server is down, but I didn't lose any data. So the setup is working as I need it to. Well, the obvious thing that comes to mind for me is the Intel NUC, that kind of tiny mini micro thing. I don't know if you've been following Surf the Home at all over the last few months, but they've been doing a series called Tiny Mini Micro where they, they get these four five six ten liter micro essentially thin client machines designed for um, business applications uh, and they've got powerful chips in them and 32 gigs of ram and you know all the rest of it and they are the size of two or three cd cases stacked on top of each other what about something like that that is pretty tempting especially if it's got you know, reasonable horsepower, and it can do decent video decoding. That would be, and networking and connectivity, because I always need to add more storage. I think what you'd be looking for there as your silver bullet for video decoding would be QuickSync support, which does limit you to Intel. But, you know, speaking from experience, QuickSync uses anywhere from four to six, maybe eight watts to transcode a 4K stream. And it's hard limited at eight watts. Like, I've never been able to get it to go above eight 8 to 10 watts is about the maximum I've ever seen. So even if you're doing multiple transcodes at once, which in an RV I find very unlikely, QuickSync is the way to go. That is the nice thing is I, I only really need to build for like two televisions. Three is the max. Well, I guess there's always tablets, but very unlikely that we'd have three TVs and a tablet going in the RV. But you could negate the transcoding requirement entirely just simply by using something like TDAR or handbrake to pre-encode the media. And you can automate all that stuff, you know, into the correct formats for the TV. You know, actually, I think for the most part, I mean, f for the most part, most of my stuff doesn't need transcoding because it's either an Apple TV or an NVIDIA Shield, and it's H.264, an AAC, 
MP3 or AC3 audio for the most part, not a hundred percent, but I'd say I'd say eighty five, ninety percent. How many terabytes do you need here in Jupes? I'd love four. I'm getting by with two, right? I would love to do more. Even I mean, I, I, ideally, I'd love fourteen. Let's be, <laughs> but I get what I do is I. I batch over just the stuff we're watching, like a couple of series for the kids, a couple of movies that are for Hadia and I, a couple of movies that are for the kids and a couple of movies that are for family and just a few TV shows. And I just kind of keep like what the current season is that we're watching of a show on there. And I don't need to keep everything because I have a larger storage at the studio. I have no idea how reliable this is, but I just looked on Amazon just to sort of see how much a two terabyte SSD costs these days. The brands you've heard of, Samsung crucial etc they're all in the 160 to 200 range per two terabytes but there's a brand here i've never heard of called levin and these guys make a two terabyte 3d nand sata 3 internal ssd for 99 dollars. i mean you throw a few of those in a raid what could go wrong <laughs> you throw a few of those with in merger fs and what I'm thinking is before a trip, right, you take it, you take one or two of these into the studio, sync across what you need to through a USB interface that's much faster than a, a network interface. And then you throw it back into your hot swap bay in dupes and you're good to go. Yeah. And then you just, and then you just keep it topped off with a little sync thing action, you know? Yes. Yeah. That could totally work. What I'm kind of picturing is like a board, right? Like a removable board almost like a piece of plywood that has the yellow mounted to it and the discs mounted to it and the Zigbee and Z-Wave antennas mounted to it. And I can just insert this board into jupes and I can pull this board out of jupes. And if I need to work on it, I just remove the whole componentry, all of it put together as one piece. I take it to the studio and I work on it and then I bring it back into jupes and I just reinstall it and reconnect things. I love that modular approach. I'd love to add into that mix your uh, your new mixer plans too. That would be kind of fun, huh? <laughs> oh, imagine the ultimate setup, right? Like server capacity, media capacity, and production capacity. And you just slide them all in. You have, you know, like eight XLR inputs on the front of this thing for all your mics and, and what have you. And then on the back, you've got a couple of network jacks and a power cord going in. And that's it. That would be pretty cool. That sounds really sweet, That'd actually. Be pretty Pretty, pretty great. Pretty, pretty great. Let's work on that then. But uh, speaking of uh, <laughs> upgrades and stuff like that, I, I assume you saw that Paulus uh, from the Home Assistant Project has been very, very excited that Matter finally hit 1.0 this week. Damn it. Can you believe this? You know what that means is that they're beginning to pull it into Home Assistant. They're beginning to build in Matter support in Home Assistant and an actual device shipped in the last week. A, a light bulb with matter it's actually happening but you know it's really still like probably six months to a year out before just general devices are available and of course of course i'm doing this rebuild right now of course my server died i couldn't hold out you know i was holding out for matter you know that was what i did that was my entire intention all along was to hold out and just replace my devices with matter devices and just as it becomes official just as the first device ships my system dies and i'm gonna have to either go all in on z-wave or zigbee zigbee's very well tested though i i wouldn't imagine matter's going to be stable properly stable for another I want to say five years, that might be a bit pessimistic, but, you know, at least two or three before we've got, you know, the ubiquitous level of devices we have now in Zigbee land. I, uh, 
I pulled the trigger and I pre-ordered the Home Assistant. I think they call it iLink. What do they call it, Alex? Sky Connect, I think. Yeah, Sky Connect. It is a Zigbee radio. It has Zigbee and Thread, and they promise they'll do a firmware upgrade and add matter to it. So Home Assistant Sky Connect is their own hardware Zigbee radio. Which seems like, okay, so Home Assistant's clearly going all in on Zigbee. This is a clear signal from the project. Zigbee is the future of Home Assistant and Matter. But then they made the announcement that they just full-time hired the Z-Wave integration guy. And now the Z-Wave integration guy is a Nebukasa employee. Mixed messages, it, it sounds is. like. I, I'm so confused as to what direction to go right now. I think what they're saying is, whatever you want to use, we're going to support. And we're going to try to support it really well. But they haven't like just clearly articulated that to me. So I'm trying to figure out, like, well, if I'm going to buy one device, should I buy Zigbee or should I be buying Z-Wave or what? It's like I'm probably going to have to replace some of these devices because some of these things are probably not going to unpair very easily with my dead system. Or are they saying that when you buy this in a year from now, when it actually lands on your door, then that then they'll be supporting it full time? Yeah, it is a pre-order and it is, quote, available soon. So just as I'm finally receiving my yellow, we'll see how long it takes me to get my Sky Connect. Well, time to review an app that I've actually put in the show notes more times than I can actually remember. We just never quite seem to get to it. Uh, this time, finally, Invoice Ninja has made the cut into the show. So I thought it would be good because I know, Brent, you do quite a lot of freelancing stuff with your photography and other things, you know, podcast related stuff. So you're always sending invoices to people. So I thought whilst we had you on the show, it would be a good time to discuss Invoice Ninja. Now, this is a piece of software that allows you to create customizable and nicely designed invoices and quotes. So essentially... When, whenever I do a piece of freelance work uh, for somebody, I create a customer in the Invoice Ninja software, and then I create a product, you know, like a podcast episode, for example, or a, something like that. And then I put in there, you know, what the product is. It, it could be a physical thing. It could be a service, whatever. And it has a, a, a rate attached to it, a standard rate, uh, which I can go in and customize if I want to, but typically it, it doesn't change that much between clients. After that, it automatically generates the invoice based on my information and the client's information. And if you get fancy and set up email with it, which I've never done, I always just download the PDF once it's generated the invoice and stick it in my email manually. But it can actually send emails directly from the Invoice Ninja software to the client, which is a really nice feature. Alex, you're right to include me because I have a lot of questions. Okay, far away. Okay, you've been using this for how long now? I think it's been like two years, if I remember. Two years, plus however long it is since I set you up with your your instance that is probably dead by now. Uh, you did send me a backup, so thank you for that. Okay, okay, good. Yeah, Alex, you, you shared with me Invoice Ninja, I think when you first found it, uh, or maybe you were a few months in and you were crazy excited about it, and I did get the chance to try it. Yeah, it's it's years old in my workflow now at this point. Everything you described your introduction just there is not something that I think is unique. I'm curious from your perspective, what are the things that you're really loving about this? Is it the is it the fact that you can self-host it really easily? Is it the fact that it's really responsive? Is it the interface? What is it about it that really grabs you? Yeah, I didn't touch much on the the actual mechanics of hosting this thing. The Invoice Ninja project actually has hosted options which you can pay monthly for. However, I don't do that. I have a fully self-hosted version that lives on my server. 
this thing requires three containers. So there's the app container, there's a database uh, container, which in my case, I'm using MySQL. And then there's a front end, which in my case, I'm using Nginx, which I then proxy through traffic. So well, i tell you what I like about it. Just as a piece of software, it looks nice. Yeah, I'll agree with that. I like the fact that when I create an invoice, it gives me a little chart that says you're owed, I don't know, $500 this month. And then until you mark that invoice as received or paid, it will show you a pending number versus a last 30-day number versus a you know 90-day number or whatever you want. Um, so I could see this being very useful for people who are actually sending hundreds of invoices every day. Less useful for me who sends maybe one a month or two a month. But it's, it's still nice to have a record of everything I've ever sent uh, in one place. The other thing that I like about it too is that uh, I can tweak stuff. And it, I, I feel like I'm using a really, uh, I'm driving a really powerful sports car and I'm, okay, I'm only pootling down the road at 30 miles an hour, but it's nice to know that it's got all of that other stuff there, should I ever need it. Yeah. And I think too, it's it's pretty quick that the pricing on a lot of the hosted invoicing can get really expensive. Um, you know, I, I have been a customer of FreshBooks for a long time. But I think I'm paying some somewhere near fifty bucks a month or something like that. Sixty bucks a month for the package. We well, JB does, not me. But it's actually kind of a good deal for a lot of these things. People pay astronomical prices for QuickBooks and the invoicing components. So there's that aspect of invoicing. Besides the UI and besides the self-hosting and the tinkering, there's the the cost savings too. In addition, it does a whole bunch of other stuff. So I can set up things like recurring invoices if I want to in a separate area from individual invoices. I can record manually all the payments that come in and attach those to specific invoices if I want to. I can also do things like quotes and proposals and set up specific projects and attach different things within Invoice Ninja to different projects and, and what have you, which... You know, if I was, uh, I don't know, let's say running a home improvement company, that could be quite useful to have different quotes for the same person within a single project, for example, or something like that. I can also do things like track uh, different vendors. So I can say, well, this vendor, I've sent them this money for this product. And like I say, it's it's an incredibly powerful piece of software that I'm really only scratching the surface of by uh, pretty much only using the invoice portion of it. But uh, it has the ability to run some pretty sophisticated reporting as well. So again, if I was a bit more of a serious small business owner or something like that, which I'm not, I could, you know, let's say, give me the last, you know, every invoice this year to a specific client or something like that. And uh, it will just show me all those things in one place. Now, Alex, have you used anything else for invoicing or is this kind of your first foray into this style of software to help you accomplish things? I used to just have a, a Google Sheet that I, you know, manually changed and filled out things uh, for a long time, which is also very powerful. It can be, but it's also, you know, you don't really have a record unless you do a new sheet per invoice or something of of what you've done. But uh, is, this is the first kind of invoicing suite, I guess, that I've used because many of the features you described are, yeah. They're great. They're not unique. But what I have found when I used Invoice Ninja was that they're very well in implemented. And like you mentioned, they allowed you to really tweak a lot of things. I have been using for many years a piece of software called Invoice Plane, and it is far more basic. It is self-hosted, and I have some automated emails and stuff sending out of there. 
But I do find after having used Invoice Ninja, thanks to you, that I feel it's lacking now. And I've, every time I use it, I'm like, oh, God, I really got to switch over. I got I to gotta change this. So I think you made probably a really nice choice in choosing your first piece of software because often the hardest part is taking all that information out of these pieces of software and, and switching to something new. That's one thing I really struggle with. And so have you investigated at all what the importing and exporting parts of this database might look like and what that's like to port to something new if you so choose? Well, I, I just, whilst we were talking just then, uh, exported a CSV report of every uh, invoice that I've sent this year. So let's just take a quick look at that. Apple numbers, of course, is going to be a, a real fun time. But yeah, so the CSV is exactly what you'd expect. It's just a bunch of, right, this client, this date, this invoice number, this amount, status, all that kind of stuff. And so if you can get it out to a, a, a format that you, you know, own like a CSV file, there's no QuickBooks or FreshBooks kind of proprietary license required. And that's a huge thing for me, given I just do this as a, you know, spare time thing. So yeah, I think uh, CSV seems to be pretty good. I, I haven't actually done anything with importing, though. Well, I have another question for you. I overheard when I was at your place last that your wife, Catherine, has been using it as well. Did you get any feedback from her using it in, in her business? Yeah, I think it's massive overkill for just invoicing a few music students, um, parents. <laughs> but uh, she likes it. I mean, she has her own login. She, you know, has a shortcut on her browsers, bookmarks. Uh, she just logs in and just does the thing. And, and like I do once a month, I guess, and just sends the invoice out and it's all good. Uh, I've just found the import data pane, by the way, and it supports a huge number of different formats. You've got CSV, JSON, FreshBooks, blah, blah, blah. Invoice plane is one of them, I would just say. There's about 10 or 12 different options for importing and exporting is uh, CSV, XLS, or JSON. Sounds like you've got me hooked. Yeah, there's no downside I can see. Next. Yeah, and even if, if you try it and you don't like it, it sounds like there's it's pretty easy to get out. So it's no, no real downside to trying it. I know a lot of people listening to this show probably love their YubiKey. I've heard from some of them. And it sounds like Cloudflare is going to work with YubiKeys. I really, I mean, I didn't know they didn't. <laughs> Tell us all about this one, Alex. Well, uh, the first thing about YubiKeys, uh, we should explain what they are for the, those that don't know. They're a hardware two-factor authentication token. So essentially what that means is whenever you log into a specific login portal, website, uh, piece of software, whatever that needs 2FA, that six-digit code or whatever, uh, it could be a, an alphanumeric string in the case of a YubiKey, you have to physically plug in a USB device into your computer or your phone via NFC. The two-factor piece is stored in the hardware of the YubiKey. That has a few benefits. Obviously, uh, unless someone has physical access to my hardware two-factor token, they can't log in. The downside is that includes me. And what I found when uh, I got a free YubiKey back at DockerCon in 2015, I think, because they were doing some uh, push to get people to sign Docker images back then. So I tried it for a while because you can load SSH keys onto this thing as well. You know, secrets can include a private key, uh, all, all that kind of stuff. Like even, even your Bitwarden two-factor authentication token can be stored and set up to work with a YubiKey. The trouble is... My YubiKey is always at the wrong end of the house. It's always at the opposite end of the house from where I am. <laughs> and so whenever I want to log into something, I'm like, damn it, 
I have to run from one end of the house to the other and or or just have multiple YubiKeys, which I feel like there's some universal law about two factor and the device you're using is always at the other end of the house. Yeah, that's true. I remember our friend Noah wears it around his neck for that very reason. I mean, so it's not to say that they're not good because they're they're incredibly useful in the workplace. For example, you want to give someone access to some privileged secrets. Uh, you give them this hardware token, and at, and at work, typically, that's you know the the most common use case for it. I would say. And so, what Cloudflare are doing is they're running a promotion with uh, YubiKey to provide these security keys at air quotes good for the internet end quotes pricing. And they start as low as $10 per YubiKey. Now, typically, these things are 30 40 plus each. Uh, so actually, that could be a huge boon if you've been looking to get involved with the Yubico, YubiKey stuff. But sign up to this uh, offer that's in the show notes with Cloudflare. It's not sponsored or affiliated. It's just a, a Cloudflare thing. Uh, and get yourself a cheap YubiKey. I, I, good for the internet pricing is adorable. I, I know. I, I I thought we're supposed to hate Cloudflare, but I can't help but think this is a good idea. This is truly good for the security of the internet. You know, Chris, I did find a YubiKey in your closet one time. I think the last <laughs> time I was here. Um, Brent, you're going through my closet? No, no, I just. But, well, we'll talk about it later. <laughs> You know, there used to be lots of reasons not to use YubiKeys. Uh, laziness, you know, being at the wrong end of the house, is one of them. <laughs> but they didn't used to make a USB-C specific one uh, that was low profile for like MacBooks and stuff. They fixed that. That's now a low profile one for MacBooks. Uh, they didn't used to work on mobile devices, but they now do through NFC. So really, there's there's no real reason if you're curious not to try one at a $10 entry price. That is a really good point. I've I've looked at these keys many times, both the YubiKeys and alternatives, and I've always hesitated to pull the trigger A on price because actually you kind of need two of them. One as your main, one as a backup. But the other reason was always that I couldn't quite figure out all of the different features and, you know, which is it Fido that I need to support everything? It's like, it seemed like 12 websites use this one proprietary way of doing it and the other 12 use this other method. So I always got lost in all of those details and complexity. And I hope that maybe that's been solved recently. Do you have any sense of whether they're easier these days than they were maybe five years ago? I think they're more mature and they support a lot more stuff than they used to. I don't know whether that makes it simpler or more approachable, though. If anything, it makes it worse because there's more options. (laughs) That's where I kind of debate, like, maybe the maybe the sweet spot is, like, an authenticator app on your phone. But I, I do kind of, I love that idea of you plug in a hardware device. That does something. It feels like you'd really want to combine a two-factor code on an authentication app with a hardware device mm. with a password, potentially. Or as a backup, you know, when places do SMS phishing attacks and stuff, that's one of the most common attack vectors is people steal your SMS access send a two-factor code there whilst they have the temporary access before you notice. Uh, and this would completely negate that as an attack vector. But only if supported. <laughs> only if supported. This takes me back to um, a few years ago where the company I worked at used YubiKeys. And in Slack, multiple times a day, different people accidentally touch their YubiKeys and put in their 40-character <laughs> you know, yep, long yep, yep. <laughs> string. Uh, those were the days. <laughs> yeah, totally. I have seen that. I see that in our chat room sometimes too. I did it one time. 
Mm-hmm. And Alex, you've you've sent some of your pass passwords to GitHub, if I remember correctly. Oh well, that's that's different. That's just me being being an idiot, but that's different. Well, what's the difference? <laughs> well, these strings aren't useful on their own because they're attached to a specific service and they're time limited and all that kind of stuff. So. If you happen to know exactly what service I'm logging into at that specific moment in history, maybe it's useful for about the next 25 seconds, but otherwise it's useless. Well, I want to talk about something you came across that really piques my interest because I'm often using Reddit as a way to discover topics that seem like might be worth discussion. And you found essentially an automatic archiver for Reddit. I did. I haven't actually tried it out yet, but there's a piece of software in the show notes linked called Expanse. And this builds itself as a fully self-hosted multi-user web app, which allows you to externally store Reddit items, such as things you've saved, created, upvoted, downvoted, and hidden. Uh, And this bypasses Reddit's 1,000 item listing limit, which I didn't know was a limit. And so essentially there's a quick demo in the uh, GitHub repo, short YouTube video. And that was enough to sell me I'm hooked. I will set this up at the earliest opportunity. Same. Um, what the video really demonstrates is it, it creates like a mirrored environment of Reddit. So you kind of create some of the same categories of saved post, upvoted post, downvoted, submitted, commented. You know, that same kind of thing you get from your Reddit history. It mirrors that UI in a cleaner way and just presents all that information to you. And it just continues to just suck that information into your own local instance. As you use Reddit like you normally might, you don't have to do anything special. Pretty much like Pocket for Reddit. Yeah, like like if but if, but like if everything you read just automatically went to Pocket or something because it's everything you do on Reddit just automatically gets backed up to this thing. It's kind of brilliant. I wish I had that for all the services. Yeah, can we get that for Hacker News? Yeah, and and Twitter and anything that's really like all the services. I want it for everything. Have you heard of RSS? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I see you found out that uh, Bitwarden has uh, integrated Fastmail email aliasing, so that way uh, when you sign up now, you can generate a Fastmail unique email address for a service. How great is this? Well, this is amazing. You know uh, that Google supports the plus uh, delimiter in their email addresses, so you can say AlexKTZ plus Twitter at Gmail or whatever. And it will send every email that Twitter has to that specific email address. The trouble is it relies on the service that's in question, Twitter or whoever, to respect that. And then also when they sell that information to third parties at whatever point Elon decides to in the future, uh, they've also got to include that plus in there because everybody knows that plus is just a delimiter. And so the real email address is just a bit before the plus. What this fast mail integration allows me to do is set up a genuine email alias. So, you know, it becomes two or three random words and a couple of random numbers instead of my actual email address being semi obfuscated. And it's built directly into the Bitwarden clients. So they have that generate password feature. If you if you look at the checkbox, the next one down is now a generate username box, which we've talked about before. But if you look just a little bit further down than that, there is a there's three or four services in there, and one of them is now Fastmail. And so just by creating or generating an email address alias in the Bitwarden client, 
it will go and talk to the Fastmail API, create the email alias. And then from that point in history, you have a routable email address that is not your real email address, but is the alias. It's it's brilliant. You know, it feels to me like we are creating a huge void between two worlds. We, we now have, you know, most of us, hopefully, who are well-educated about passwords, using password managers. You know, you mentioned YubiKey earlier. All of these things that are really great. But then I feel like most people are just not even anywhere close to using a unique email address for each service. I, I, I think we need to figure out how to bridge that gap. Well, the tooling helps, you know, building the tooling to do it. I think that's what this, I think that's what this is trying to do, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Yeah. Okay. You win. I, I've been, I mean, this is not a sponsored thing. I've been trying to get Brent on Bitwarden for weeks. The man loves his, uh, key pass. <laughs> you know what I like about it is that, um, it's worked for the last 15 years and I don't need to question yeah, it. Yeah. And, uh, but I've been trying to find that key reason that will make me switch and maybe this is it i think the key reason will be when you decide it's time uh if i know anything about about you brent it's that you have to decide it's a good idea before you'll do something shouldn't that be all of us (laughs) yeah technically (laughs) technically i think it might be time for some feedback gentlemen what do you think bring it on we've been getting a lot of various tail scale alternatives sent into the show and at first i was like okay okay but one that's coming a couple of times has been netbird and i don't know if either one of you guys have seen this but netbird is trying to check all the boxes and i hope the tail scale team takes this as a compliment because this is clearly an indication that they're on to something that all of these open source projects have cropped up um, and I suppose for a lot of folks, head scale has not been sufficient, I guess. But the Netbird folks are attempting to get as close as you can to a WireGuard-based mesh network. They're supporting single sign-on and multi-factor authentication like Tailscale does. They have some simple controls. I don't think they have the install down quite as smooth as Tailscale does, but really, who would, right? But you get a lot of it. You get a lot of the advantages. Um but, you know, it's 100% a, uh, well, it doesn't have to be. Actually, they're also offering their own hosted implementation as well, of course, which then I'm not even sure why it's even better than Tailscale. But they do have, a by default, a host implementation, but they make it really clear how to do all your own self-hosting, if you like. This is why we were all so excited about WireGuard being put in the Linux kernel a few years ago. It legitimized the project, and we hoped at the time that it would lead to this proliferation of solutions based upon it for vpn stuff i'm so pleased to see that that's coming true aren't you yeah absolutely and it looks like you know we're gonna have a spoil of choices so i i wonder if we'll go through a period of some of these sort of proving themselves out and tail scale will probably be a leader for a while because they got a huge start they have a commercial entity behind them that has some money and uh, they got a good product right but so now you're going to see a lot of I'd say um, um, kind of not clones, but that's kind of kind of what they are, right? And we're going to have to see which one kind of wins out and which one ends up being the most popular in the community. Will it be tail scale and head scale for those that want self-hosting or will it be something like Netbird? So if you've tried something like this out there, let us know. Send us a boost or go to selfhosted.show slash contact and let us know your thoughts. I, I am just so happy with tail scale. And now that I'm doing subnet routing and all of that, I... I'm really I'm really quite pleased. I don't really see any particular reason to switch and I'm also totally comfortable with their backplane managing 
some of the authentication and some of the connecting. That's fine for me because I want this to work like a rock. We talked a little bit about the subnet routing uh, at the Airbnb in Pasadena with our questionable Wi-Fi situation. <laughs> That's generous. <laughs> and uh, it's it's fascinating. I, I use the heck out of the subnet routing. It's amazing. Oh, it's so handy, especially for devices that aren't PCs or Raspberry Pis, that you, something you can't install software on, like uh, my Victron solar equipment and battery equipment. I can't install Tailscale on that. It's an appliance. But I have Tailscale on my Raspberry Pi that's on the same LAN, and I have subnet routing on. So now I'm, like, checking the solar when we're at the Airbnb, making sure Jupes is doing okay. And then, you know, I wanted to check the temperatures at the studio, so I have Tailscale installed from Hacks on Home Assistant with subnet routing turned on. And so I'm checking the temperatures in the garage to make sure the server's okay. And I'm just using local IPs for all of it. And I'm pleased to say that I, I, I did hope one day that this would exist, that this world would be real. And so I preemptively set the RV network to a 172.16 subnet. And the studio is a 192.168.7 subnet. Smart man. And so the two are very different. And that has made life like, so it just made it ready to go. Yeah. When Brent was here, I had to completely rechange my, uh, retool my CIDA, my, my IP range in the house because there was some overlap between my house here and uh, my dad's starlink network because remember I, I moaned in an episode i couldn't change the dhcp range uh, so i had to completely retool so that's some good foresight from you there christopher i tell you what the old days the old days of vpning like an animal building flat networks but uh let us know if you try out netbird i'd be really curious to hear how it goes yeah same and i think in a future episode we might do a bit of bit more of a deep dive into the subnet routing that uh, that I'm doing and the split DNS between different sites, because I think that'd be of interest to folks. So if you're interested in that, let us know at selfhosted.show slash contact. I agree. Having chatted a little bit about it at the Airbnb, I think it would be a great topic. We got some boosts into the show too, and Nev boosted in with over 9,000, 9,001 sats. And we also got 1024 sats from Amar, who's having some trouble getting their audio whole home audio working. So these are these are our whole home audio boosts that I wanted to follow up on. So we'll start with Nev. And he writes, whole home audio as a concept has existed as long as human history. <laughs> so there are plenty of solutions moving around. Rather than getting fancy with software, I might present an alternative, he writes. Pulse Audio's network streaming and Cody. Now, why Cody? Because Kodi has a rich app ecosystem for remote controls and a web GUI. Plus, it supports Plex, Jellyfin, MB, and even Aircast. This solution I have been using for years now. I would never have thought of Kodi. Would you? No, and I, I think it's probably worth a mention because a lot of people love Kodi that listen to the show. And Pulse Audio Network Streaming has been around for years, and I never think to mention it. But I constantly hear feedback from the audience that it works pretty well. Just anything with Pulse Audio gives me PTSD, I think. <laughs> Rusticast Aversa boosted with 2,000 sats, and he echoed a sentiment we heard from multiple people out there. What about Volmilio or Volumio? Sorry, I'm butchering that. But uh, it acts as an AirPlay Chromecast endpoint. Um, he says if you want a lot of them synced, you'd have to pay, but it's a good project, so it's worth paying for. I had a couple of recommendations for Volumio, actually. The pricing doesn't put me off too much. I don't mind necessarily paying for the the right solution. I mean, the alternative would be just giving up and going for a Sonos-based deployment, right? And that 
that ain't going to be free, is it? So the other thing that uh, came in as a recommendation was there's a chap on YouTube called Darko that does, he's got beautiful production quality on his videos. He is a hi-fi audiophile nerd. And he, he talks occasionally about how he streams music around his house. One of the recommendations I had come in was something called Rune Audio. It's not open source, I don't think. Uh, and it is paid. It does cost quite a bit per month. But, you know, this will support, along with uh, Volumio, multiple rooms based off a of Raspberry Pi and that kind of thing. I'm still stuck, though, on how to actually automate the speaker component. The, the Raspberry Pi bit, I think, is actually the easy bit. I mean, there's a few options. You know, Snapcast is another one uh, out there. It's just controlling the speaker component that's the tricky bit. The Broadlink infrared emitter blaster that I talked about in the last episode sort of kind of is behaving itself, but I've ordered the components to build myself a blaster based off an ESP device as well. See if that's any better than the Broadlink stuff because it's not. It's just not reliable enough. But yeah, thanks for the recommendation. I'll, I'll take a look at uh, Volumio a bit more seriously over the next next few weeks when I'm not traveling to LA. It's a shame to hear you're having some trouble with the IR blaster because when you're doing the music stuff and you just you just want to hit a button and have it go, you know, you want it to be a really kind of chill experience. That's not <laughs> it's not when you want to do the troubleshooting. It seems to me like the intersection of two very different worlds. You know, the the hardware button audio file grade box that's sitting, you know, next to your TV or your entertainment system feels like maybe high end technology of a very different era and you're trying to kind of marry the two. So I understand there's clearly some, some challenge there, but wouldn't it be great if they just made friends? <laughs> uh, quick code wanted to know if anybody has any tips on content request systems for music. You know how there's things out there like overseer and other tools for like books and stuff like that. If anybody has suggestions for music, send them into the show. And then drew oof or Dr. Oof boosted in with 5,678 sats, and he wanted to give a plus one to the Zoo's Z-Wave switches, specifically the 700 series. Thank you very much for that detail. He says, I've been through a bunch of different brands of smart switches over the years, and the Zoo's have been, that's Z-O-O-Z, have been the most reliable, affordable, and configurable to date. I'm a network security engineer by trade, and I have an enterprise-grade Wi-Fi throughout my house and property, four different APs, and even that can't keep up with my smart switches. Interesting. My house is long and narrow, so it just turns out 900 megahertz mesh network works better than Wi-Fi. Thanks for the great podcast. I do love 900 megahertz. I love 900 megahertz radio so much. <sighs> I wish we could have stayed there. Megastrike 3 boosted in with 3,000 sats. Hey, Chris and Alex, love the show. I picked up an IKEA Zigbee light bulb. As I begin to build out my smart home, any recommendations for a home assistant Zigbee router? Currently, I'm looking at the Conbi 2. Thanks, as always. Well, he's already got my recommendation. That Conbi, I, I, I used the really cheap uh, Sonoff one to start with, uh, and it was it was not good. It was just not good. But the Conbi 2 has been, <laughs> my favorite phrase, rock solid since I installed it. <laughs> You know what, though? I agree. In fact, I don't even have like mine hanging off a dongle. It's just like hooked up right to the back of my home assistant blue in the studio. And I'm talking to devices that are on the other end of the house. I will also link to uh, the Zalish Zigbee 3.0 stick that Cloudfree.shop sells because 
I would imagine if Cloudfree is selling that, that's probably a pretty good device. But I, too, own the Conbi 2 USB Zigbee gateway and have been very happy with it. And Home Assistant just picked it up right away. So that was really nice. Don't forget, we've still got a coupon code over at cloudfree.shop. If you put self-hosted in there, you'll probably get a dollar off whatever you're buying. At user 3513, boosted in with 8,192 sats. I'd love to know how Alex is running Proxmox and Docker on his systems. Are you running an Ubuntu VM on top of Proxmox or containers? Did you use a bare metal Linux and then somehow hack the packages to install Proxmox onto it? Tell user 3513, Alex. You know, this question has been coming up in Discord a lot in the last month or so. And it's it's like something has has changed and uh people just need to need to know exactly what i'm doing to copy it which i don't understand but they can't buy pies anymore so they're finally giving in and buying x86 systems and going proximal they are very sensible <laughs> people you know they should you know uh you should you should consider doing that <laughs> God damn it. perfectmediaserver.com would be where i'd send people for actual documentation on on what i'm doing i put a new page up there in may i think badger stack in in may just to just to tell because i got I was getting so many questions what are you doing alex what are you doing and i'm like well okay here it is here's the hardware i'm using the exact hardware the cpu the the os all that kind of stuff so in the original perfect media server guides i used to recommend virtualizing ubuntu uh, and then passing through all of the drive controllers to those virtual machines that was in the days before I was an absolute quicksync snob. Uh, and if you recall in the show a long time ago, uh, also I've written blog posts about it, uh, and it's on perfectmediaserver.com, um, I was I was trying to do something called GVTG to split the quicksync GPU, the, the iGPU, up between multiple virtual machines and pass it through and all, all, all that kind of stuff. It just didn't work. The performance was no good and the complexity was off the charts and uh, you know how it goes. So essentially, I decided at that point, I've got no option. If I want hardware transcoding using QuickSync, rather than having my dual Xeon box pull 400 watts, I only want to pull four watts when I'm doing a transcode. And who wouldn't want that? Uh, I've got to run Plex on the host. And that's it. That really drove the next wave of, of my builds which I've been doing now for about 18 months, I would say. All of my containers run directly on the host. Home Assistant itself runs as a HassOS VM, or whatever they call it these days. That's the only VM I have in Proxmox, is literally just Home Assistant. It's, it's a bit of a waste. I mean, occasionally I spin up a, you know, an Ubuntu thing for testing or a Fedora thing or whatever, just literally for testing. But in terms of production... Everything's on the Proxmox host. It's all done in Ansible in my GitHub repo, which I'll put a link to in the show notes as well. And it's just really simple. It's just an install of Debian with Proxmox installed on top of it. I use the Proxmox documentation to achieve that. There's not much to it. It's just Linux, really. It's very boring. <laughs> I think that's a good thing. I was We were talking before we hit record. I'm like, you know, there's a lot of things about Linux that are getting boring, but that's what you need when it becomes like this layer in the industry. It just needs to work. So that's great. And we'll have a link to Alex's high-level overview in the notes, including uh, some links to also, as Alex is adding them right now, to documentation on how to get Proxmox running on Debian 11. The Badger Stack. 
The Badger's deck. Yeah. <laughs> well, it can be confusing because Proxmox provide an ISO directly. So you can install Proxmox directly from an ISO, just, you know, from the project. Or you can install Debian and then install Proxmox on top of it. And that can confuse some people. Either route is completely valid. One is slightly more hands-on the, than the other. There's no real preference in my mind as to which one works better. Just do whatever makes you feel warm and cozy. I'm wondering how you feel about this next one, Alex. John A. Boosting with 10,000 sats. And he, after listening to the last episode, is YOLOing into setting up his own email server. No. Yeah. Yeah, he he also was checking out Podverse, which is awesome new podcast yes. apps. And we also heard from P four P four John, who says I've started self hosting my own email server this year. I got a business Comcast connection with a static IP, and I'm using Unohost. It's going great. We're somehow when we say I don't know if it's a good idea, people are like, "Thanks, guys, <laughs> I'm doing it." You guys are crazy. I don't think it's a good idea to send us a million dollars. That would be an awful idea, don't you? Oh yeah, yeah, definitely a bad idea to. No, no. <laughs> so I, you know, I just think it's interesting. So John, you can send us an email from your shiny new email server to tell us how it's going, huh? And if we receive it, we'll <laughs> let you know. <laughs> right. Yeah, definitely. Also, let me know how the Podverse transition goes, John. I'm going to expect a boost from Podverse in the future. Uh, also, I just want to give a quick shout out. We got 5,555 sats from Soltros sending in just some love for the show. Just wanted to wish us well. I thought that was nice. And then... Brent, you got this one right. Uh, Schmitzfeld, I think it was. Schmitzfeld. He says uh, that he just wanted to send us a series of ducks, Huey, Louie, and Dewey. And we got 3,000 sats from Four-Legged Emu, who says he's loving Calyx on his Pixel. So we got I switched to graphene, and now I'm hearing about Calyx constantly. I heard you were testing graphene, so maybe you need to switch and text Calyx Maybe I should just go back to the iPhone, because this is just, it's too much too much but we do love the boost we read all of them we only feature some of them on the shows now just to keep things tight but we do appreciate everybody who sends one in if you'd like to boost the show you can grab a new podcasting app newpodcastapps.com or if you don't want to switch podcast apps you can use breeze b-r-e-e-z dot technology and keep your dang podcast app i think probably alby deserves a mention as well alby is a way to do it from the web if you don't want to use a mobile app at all and the Albi team seems to be really solid. They're creating some great open source code. I had a little call with uh, one of their co-founders. I really like where they're going. A-L-B-Y for that. Can we give a little pluggy pug to officehours.hair? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's something about plugs and hair. But officehours.hair, uh, lucky episode 13, I think it was. We covered our, our uh, some of the shenanigans on our trip. And then in the most recent Linux Unplugged, we covered our JPL trip too, which... How great was the JPL trip? Alex, how was the JPL trip? I just can't process it. Did that really happen to us? Like, we're just normal people. <laughs> Stuff like that doesn't happen to normal people, does it? It was so cool. And and to see the Clipper, to see them working on the next mission, the Europa Clipper. Oh, so cool. I caught Chris last night tun- tuning into the live cam that you can get for their... Uh, when you? Oh, cool. Yeah, on YouTube. Go look up the, if you look up the Europa Clipper stream, it's on there. I've checked it several times and they've added a lot more to it since we saw it. Wow. That's, that's so cool. I'm just so grateful. I know I put a little clip in uh, Linux Unplugged for you saying how great the audience is. And it sounds like a cliche, but genuinely, I think you said it, that it's amazing. We had, you know, 20 people show up for the tour and uh, about double that for the meetup. Not one person got lost. Everybody was on time. 
Everybody was friendly. They brought stories. They brought, you know, I was just like, does any other podcast network have such an amazing audience? I I don't know. But ours is pretty great. I don't think so. How could they? Because we took all the good ones. (laughs) True. I also learned so much just by chatting with people. Alex, I know you were fascinated basically all night because I was kind of hanging around you and learning a bunch of stuff. But Chris, you were having a great time and it was almost like 10 p.m. Yeah. Oh, we went for our meetup went for five hours strong and I still didn't get to everybody. Uh, But let's let's be clear here. Alex saved the night because our our guest of the night, Tim Kenham from JPL, brought a very exclusive little device. He brought the computer from the Mars copter, like the, you know, the Earth version, the test version, the prototype version. He brought that for show and tell so we could all see like just the parts that we don't recognize. And it's, a you know, it's in this bag and it's like secret top or it's like private property of NASA and JPL. Like it's, <laughs> and then it's inside like this sealed case even, you know, and it was like really a big deal. And Tim, bless his heart, uh, you know, I think with just everything going on, he got up, walked away. He left it on the bench. <laughs> he left it on the bench. We ne- we very nearly had our own iPhone 4 moment, didn't we? Very nearly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you tapped him on the shoulder and you're like, oh, I think you forgot something. And I think he was extremely grateful. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of history right there. Yeah. What a lovely guy. What a lovely guy. Yeah, it was really nice of him to help us make all that happen. And then... To make it to the meetup as well and, and bring a little show and tell for everybody. Just so cool. Really, really a great experience. Something you'll never forget, you know? Yeah. Huge thanks to Tim. Huge thanks to everybody at JB. But of course, thanks to Linode as well for enabling us all to go down there and take the tour, you know? Yeah, absolutely. They uh, they really came through for us. And, you know, we had some great swag. We got to give away swag to people who came to JPL and came to all the meetups, too. And uh, Linode gave us an updated uh, shirt for the road with uh, the new route on there and all that and brighter, bolder colors. So awesome. And the very last meetup is on the day that this episode airs. So if you're a very keen listener, you've still got time to catch Chris in Portland on his way back north at 6 p.m. Pacific time on October the 7th. Yep. And if you missed us, future meetups meetup.com slash jupiter broadcasting although i do think we've uh, we've done the meetups uh, pretty heavily for the last few months i will say if you're going to be in raleigh around halloween at all things open i'm going to be in town obviously because i live here but so is cheese bacon longtime friend of the network i think system 76 are sending him over to manor booth for the conference uh, so we may do an informal meetup, uh, keep an eye on the matrix Raleigh room and we'll talk about any stuff that's going to happen in there we'll mention it in the shows too, of course, but the details will be in the matrix room. Mm, that's going to be fun. All things open always seems like a good one to go to. Now we do love your feedback, your questions, your topic ideas, selfhosted.show slash contact is the place to go to get in touch with us. And of course you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Chris LAS. And for now, at least until Elon closes the deal, finally, I'm at Ironic Badger. <laughs> and yeah. The, and I'm at Brent Gervais. We might have to revisit the whole Twitter topic Again. soon. In the meantime, there is, yes, there is a uh, also a show account for some reason at Self-Hosted Show. <laughs> you can follow it. <laughs> what a ringing endorsement that is. And thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs> that was selfhosted.show slash 81. Hey, guys, I remember when Airbnb used to be good. You remember that? Oh, I remember. I remember. (laughs) 
<laughs> ah, we remember. Boy, I mean, the, if this Airbnb was like a mix of like a lot of great. It had some really good spots for us to hang out. It had some good kitchen and, and outdoor cooking areas. Great grill. Until the propane ran out anyway. Yeah, and the and the grease fire. But uh, it didn't have doorknobs on some of the doors. <laughs> <laughs> the hot tub didn't work. The outdoor fireplace didn't work. The Wi-Fi didn't extend beyond the kitchen and Alex's bedroom. That was it. That was where the Wi-Fi worked. Like we, Alex had to like deploy his own Wi-Fi solution. <laughs> it was bad. I literally had the eye of Sauron too, looking at me over my bed because the Wi-Fi router had this massive blue LED on the front of it. It was hilarious. Well, that was, it was, uh, that was their, no, I think that was their ring device coordinator for the ring alarm. So not only did they have ring cameras throughout the place, oh my God. but then they had 15 other wired traditional cameras on this Airbnb, including so many cameras. It was insane. It was kind of obnoxious. Yeah. Including two in the living room. They were covered up by someone else. We didn't cover them up, but they were covered up, but they were in the living room and they were on because you could see the red led lights for the IR vision lit up, but just the, the, the lens was covered. What about your shower, Chris? <laughs> so I don't know if you guys have ever had a shower that has two knobs that need to be rotated in different directions and two different heads. And, um, then you combine like that with an instant water heater that only kicks in when there's a certain amount of flow and the default configuration for the shower doesn't actually generate enough flow to create hot water. <laughs> so uh, both the wife and I took five to 15 minutes figuring out how to turn each individual knob into the right direction to activate both heads to create enough flow, even if you just let one of them just piss into the wind like you you just need both you have to run both of them to get enough water flow to get the water hot and i probably ended up using 15 times more water than i needed to just to get this shower operational i've never been in a shower like that then we turned on the bathtub and after about 15 seconds of the water running a bunch of black water came out like a lot of black water like it turned the tank black oh my but then it turned out the tub didn't hold water, so that didn't really matter. You know, the shower at Wes and I's end of the house, because it was, you know, literally these giant quadrants, it worked just fine, but we had to run to the hot water in the sink to get the shower to get hot as well, so same problem. <laughs> Almost as bad as the hot water heater at my house, but uh, I'll tell you, I think my favorite feature of the Airbnb was... Hmm, I never saw it in person, but I think it was possibly your broken bed, Chris. Oh, I, I went and inspected it because it was a story. Uh, yeah, so um, <laughs> my bed broke. Uh, <laughs> Why are you getting so red? <laughs> well, so the first night, the first night I noticed, like, if my wife just so much as twitched her leg, the whole bed would shake. And I, I, at some point, I even got a little motion sickness, which I don't often get motion sickness, but the up and down shaking. And so the next morning I, I was telling the guys, I was like, I think my bed's broken because it just doesn't, no bed should shake like this. And then like the next day or the day after that, when my wife and I were on the bed, one of the legs just completely busted off and collapsed. And so we, the bed just, and it was a high up bed too. Oh, yeah. And the bed just dropped and it's very jarring when that happens. And then it's at a significant slant. You can't sleep like that. So we inevitably looked at it, but we realized we couldn't fix it. It was destroyed. 
and we weren't doing anything crazy. So we just had to drag the mattresses off the bed and put them on the floor. And we slept on the floor of the Airbnb. But then it turned out I was sleeping directly under this ginormous LCD television that was completely unusable because to do literally anything, you had to sign into an Amazon account because it was like an integrated fire TV. So you could not do anything unless, oh, I forgot to sign out a Plex. <laughs> Time to rotate right those passwords. Someone's got my Plex sign in at that Airbnb. But you know what? That's kind of fun in a way, too. What are they uh, watching? Yeah, let's find out. But as but this big TV was right over where I was at, and I had a blue LED light that was shining on my face all night long. It was horrible. I mean, Alex, you had the excellent position of the air conditioner, so it's not like your sleep was much better. Well, the first night, I think I was still wired from the flights or something. I slept horribly on the first night. Not helped by the fact that the air conditioning unit was literally through the walls. And every time it turned on, it the compressor came on with this huge clunk, like someone had hit the wall with a baseball bat or something. And then it was proceeded to be like, the white noise from the compressor was... It was very loud, and then you kind of get used to it, and just as you're getting used to it after about, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes, it shuts off, and then you have to recalibrate, and then 15, 20 minutes right. later, it turns back on again. You're like, oh, oh, oh. You see, I just never quite got to sleep on that first night. I definitely enjoyed every time you'd walk around the front of the house, one of the ring cameras would say, hi, you're on camera. Oh, lovely. Hi, you're on camera. We quickly found a way to disable that one. Yeah. And so, you know, what do you do when you when you give an Airbnb like this that has like tech gone awry and a bunch of tech guys stay there? We like deployed our own Wi-Fi. We like disabled the ring system. Like We, <laughs> we just had our way. Wait, what did you bring, Alex, to fix all that? I mean, it was amazing. I took my slate with me. And uh, this was at Brent's request because I was still here when you guys arrived. Alex, Alex, bring your slate with you. Uh, and so I just, we found a spare LAN port, uh, bizarrely, off the, and hung it off the back of one of the ring devices. Uh, and then even though we had double NAT, everybody could actually finally get Wi-Fi in the lounge, which was, it's a novel concept, but the slate did wonders. We couldn't actually find the original AP. We think it might have been up in the attic or something. Uh, uh, near Alex's bedroom because, you know, we used Wi-Fi analysis to determine where the signal was strongest. And we, we thought Alex's room was like the best. We're like, we'll save the good internet for Alex because we know he's not going to want a room without good internet. That was Brent's insight. And it was a good one. We didn't realize the air conditioner was out there, though, because <laughs> nobody had stayed in that room. But like, it was funny because like you go to the living room and all of a sudden you'd have no cell signal and you'd have no Wi-Fi. And you're in Pasadena, California, and you've got no internet. If it just couldn't have been any worse. There are two things that were my favorite. Oh, yeah? Number one was Star Trek playing PNG, episode one, season one, at the very moment that we entered, and it just kept playing through the seasons. Uh, what? Why was that happening, Chris? There was a network that just was... Yeah, Pluto TV has the Star Trek TNG channel, and they might have hit the reset, because I think the day we arrived at the Airbnb was the 35th anniversary of Star Trek The Next Generation. Mm. So we got there right as... Uh, as uh, Encounter at Farpoint was just beginning, and we left at Cupid, which is about 94 episodes into Star Trek TNG. That's about how many hours we spent there, I think. Yeah. <laughs> it was one episode per hour for every hour we were there. And it was pretty neat because after we figured out what was going on, we're like, okay, when we wake up, it's probably going to be this episode. And lunchtime, it's probably going to be this episode. make it back by this episode. The only thing that threw us off is every now and then they would skip an episode. 
So you never quite knew. So there was still the what's going to be the next one because you never knew if that was one that got skipped. So it kind of gamified it. Uh, and I heard that you checked on the TV a few times in the middle of the night. Oh, yeah. Every time I got up or anybody, anybody that got up. Yeah. I came and adjusted the thermostat at like 2 a.m. on the first night. And uh, Brent and Wes were sat there at 2 a.m. watching uh, TNG. It was hilarious. <laughs> it wasn't even a good episode. 